Hello, my name is Paul Ryan and I am the founder of GP Consult. I work as both a pharmacist and as a GP and I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. I really enjoy making international guidelines relevant to those of us in primary care. So in this third podcast on the management of type 2 diabetes in primary care, I'm going to talk about six different areas. Number one is the use of oral hypoglycemics in renal impairment. The second part of this podcast is going to be the effect of oral hypoglycemics on patients' weight. The third part, I'm going to specifically talk about gliflozins or um, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, which they're also known as. Number four, I'm going to talk about incretin-based therapies, so both GLP-1 mimetics and DPP-4 inhibitors. Number five, I'm going to talk about cardiovascular outcomes. And the final part I'm going to talk about um, is the current guidelines on cardiovascular outcomes, namely the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, the American Diabetes Association, and the SIGN guidelines. So hypoglycemics that are useful in renal impairment include linagliptin, the GLP-1 mimetics, so any of the glutides, pioglitazone, and insulin. So linagliptin is the one TPP4 inhibitor whose dose does not change as, as the EGFR declines. So that's a useful, useful thing to, uh, to remember. So next thing I'm going to talk about are the hypoglycemics um, effect on a patient's weight. So some hypoglycemics cause weight loss, namely metformin, gliflozins, and GLP-1 mimetics. The gliflozins cause about 3 kilogram weight loss, and the GLP-1 mimetics uh, may cause about 5 kilogram weight loss at two years. The next one is weight neutral uh, oral hypoglycemics, which are the gliptins, and the ones that can cause weight gain are glycoside, pioglitazone, and insulin. So next, for the next part of the podcast, I'm going to talk about gliflozins, or sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. So just to talk about the pharmacology of these agents first, 180 grams of glucose is usually filtered by the kidney every day. When plasma glucose levels exceed 11 millimoles per litre, this results in greater than 180 grams of glucose being filtered by the kidney per day, resulting in urinary glucose excretion. The sodium glucose co-transporter is responsible for most of the glucose reuptake within the kidney. SGLT2 reabsorbs 90% of this glucose, with 10% being reabsorbed by SGLT1. By inhibiting this transporter, glucose is excreted in the urine, resulting in plasma glucose being lowered. Due to their site of action, the efficacy of SGLT2 inhibitors with regard to uh, glucose lowering effect depends on renal function with an EGFR greater than 60 required prior prior to starting these agents. And this is advice as per November 2020 because I I feel in the next few years this, this threshold will be lowered. So far now, if you're starting someone on a gliflozin or otherwise known as an SGLT2 inhibitor, the EGFR has to be 60 or above. If the person is on an SGLT2 inhibitor or a gliflozin and their EGFR 
dips to below 60, so we say it's 50 or 55, this can be continued until the EGFR hits 45. And when it hits 45 or below, it should be discontinued. Now, these agents are not to be taken in combination with loop diuretics. They themselves cause uh, diuresis. As patients taking these medicines pass more urine, it is important to encourage them to drink more water, especially in nursing home residents. They are generally discontinued if a second UTI occurs in a patient. And if a, a patient experiences a, a fungal genital urinary infection, as a result of these agents, they, need to be they generally need to be prescribed an oral antifungal. If the fungal genital urinary infections are recurrent, the SGLT2 may need, may need to be discontinued. So agents within this class include uh, canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, empagliflozin and ertugliflozin. I always just remember uh, my memory aid is C, D and E. So canagliflozin, dapagliflozin and empagliflozin and then the most recent one, ertugliflozin. So I suppose just to remember these three things, um, uh, when starting, just to be mindful of. Number one, do not start if the EGFR is 59 mils per minute uh, or below, as the glycemic efficacy is dependent on renal function and are more predisposed to getting orthostatic hypotension and you know raised potassium levels in that if they are started. If the patient is on a glyphosate, to stop the glyphosate if the EGFR hits 44 mils per minute. Now, the interesting thing is that if you look over at the States and Canada, canagliflozin is actually licensed um, for diabetic kidney disease in patients who have an EGFR of greater than 30. So I feel in the next year or two, things are going to change here and we'll be able to start them at a lower uh, EGFR. But for the moment, the SBC states that you, 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 um, you cannot start them if the EGFR is greater than 60. The second thing to be mindful of, first so is uh, do not start if the EGFR is 59 mils per minute or below. But the second thing is do not start if the patient has peripheral arterial disease or diabetic foot disease. Um, and then the third thing is that um, to ensure that they are stopped during dehydrating illness. So we know that the other agents to stop during dehydrating illness, metformin, ACE inhibitors, diuretics um, and lithium. So glyphosins themselves have very few side effects, um, but uh, as already mentioned, they may cause um, UTIs because sugar in the urine increases bacterial growth. The other thing to be mindful of is that initial dapagliflozin trials showed an associated increase uh, in bladder cancers in men, uh, so that they should not be used with pioglitazone. Now, there are three more serious adverse effects with glyphosins. Now, I mentioned already that um, in, to not start in people who have, who have peripheral vascular disease. And why is that? The MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare and Products Regulatory Agency, in June 2016 stated that there was a risk of amputation with glyphosins and that canagliflozin should be stopped in those patients who develop ulcers, osteomyelitis or gangrene. Dehydration itself may contribute to the increased risk of this and we know the canagliflozin effect uh, it, it is uh, affects SGLT1 and 2 so that's particularly uh, probably because um, 
the re that's probably the reason why canagliflozin more so than the others are associated with it. Patients who are on glyphosin should check their feet regularly. So, the f so that was the first one, the risk of amputation with glyphosins. The second point is diabetic ketoacidosis with glyphosins. And this is an, another MHRA warning to, in 2016. So the risk, um, and it's a not, uh, it's a euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. So it can occur at blood sugars less than 14. So for us not to be reassured by normal blood glucose if a person is into us with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, excessive thirst, or rapid weight loss, or pre, you know tachypneic. Um, the risk is between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 10,000, especially in at-risk patients if intercurrent illness or dehydrated. SGLT2s are not recommended if, if people are on loop diuretics uh, or frail elderly uh, for this reason. Uh, and if the patient is in front of us, if we're, if we're work, working in an A&E department, we can do an ABG. But if not, um, we can test for blood ketones uh, using the strips if suspected euglycemic DKA. The third most serious adverse effect is the possible increased risk of Fournier's gangrene with SGLT2s, and that's uh, as per MHRA in February 2019. So now just to talk about the cardiovascular benefits of glyphosins. So three years ago, the Drugs and Therapeutics Bulletin stated that glyphosins may offer cardiovascular benefits, but more data from properly controlled trials was needed there was observational data showing encouraging results, but a prospective blinded RCT was needed. In November 2018, there was a declared TIMI trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, in which dapagliflozin showed uh, that there was, it caused a lower rate of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. There was an, and there was no difference in major adverse cardiac events in MACE versus placebo. Now, there was also a meta-analysis of cardiovascular and renal outcomes with SGLT2 inhibitors uh, in The Lancet in November 2018. And it showed that glyphosins have moderate benefits of MACE um, a reduction in those with established cardiovascular disease. And that they reduce hospitalizations for heart failure and progression of renal disease regardless of existing cardiovascular disease or a history of heart failure. So following on from that, um, Dapagliflozin is now licensed as of November 2020 in the treatment of HEFREF, so heart failure reduced ejection fraction, so where the ejection fraction is less than 40%, 40%, and it can be used on top of standard care. So in standard care, we know ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, spironolactone, and there's actually no, there's no dose adjustment required based on renal function, although there's limited experience if the EGFR is less than 30 so just to acknowledge the difference in, in indications for heart failure and as a hypoglycemic agent, if a person, uh, if we want to put a patient with type 2 diabetes on a glyphlis, on dapagliflozin, that they should have an EGFR of greater than 60. But if a patient has heart failure currently, which is a separate indication, it can be given to the patient at a 10 milligram dose in a patient with an EGFR of over 30. So it's just an interesting change, and that's a recent change in the last few weeks that I've seen. So the fourth part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about incretin-based therapies. So these are these are your GLP-1 mimetics and your DPP-4 inhibitors. So what are incretins? Incretins are gastrointestinal hormones that increase insulin secretion and promote satiety. 
they were initially seen because um, patients who take oral glucose, they call it, this causes a much greater insulin release versus people who are given IV glucose. So the two main types of incretin-based therapies, one of the GLP-1 mimetics, your glutides, and separate one there, your TP4 inhibitors, your gliptins. The main risk with these are your, is your risk of pancreatitis, which ranges from 1 to 100 to 1 to 1,000. And so if a patient presents with abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, that's just one of your differentials to have in mind if they're on a glutide or they're on a glyptin. So just to talk about glutides first, your GLP-1 rheumatics. GLP-1 is lower in those with type 2 diabetes. So, um, and this is where it was seen that by giving people GLP-1, it actually gives better um, glucose control. They are actually useful if the person has low e, uh, EGFR because they, you can use them down to an EGFR of 15. So glyptin so, uh, should be the one thing uh, when you're starting a person on a glutide or GLP-1 rheumatics is that you should stop the GPP-4 inhibitors, your glyptins, before starting GLP-1 mimetic because of this therapeutic duplication. So so because the both from GPP-4 indirectly increases GLP-1, um, so you've, there's no point in putting leaving them on a glyptin and then, uh, and then start a glutide. So semaglutide, which is ozempic, and dulaglutide, which is trulicity, can be given once weekly subcutaneously. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen in the UK, semaglutide can actually come uh, comes now as a tablet. So semaglutide, 100 milligram once daily, it should be given with 120 mils of water, 30 minutes before medic other medications or food. And that that's a that's a recent change. I as of today in Ireland, we don't have uh, semaglutide orally. So liraglutide, which is Victoza, is a once daily subcutaneous injection, and young. Um, uh, it can be given to young women of childbearing age or else if, if you're thinking of moving on to insulin. Exenatide, which is twice daily, is given as beta or as weekly as bidurian. Exenatide is a very interesting molecule in that it was initially taken from the saliva of a Gila monster. So it's a synthetic form of the component of saliva from the Gila monster. Just to talk about the adverse effects, uh, it cause, mainly cause nausea and vomiting with the GLP-1 mimetics. And the cynic in me uh, can explain the reason why you have weight loss with GLP-1 mimetics. One of the reasons is that you have nausea. When you're nausea, you're not going to be eating. They are very expensive. They're injectable, apart from the recent launch of the semaglutide. But um, the rest of them are injectable, and people don't like injections. From what I see, uh, a lot of our own patients aren't as keen on injections as they are tablets. And obviously, like anything else, there are new molecules. There's limited long-term data compared to metformin, which is around since 1957. So just to talk about the cardiovascular outcomes with GLP-1 mimetics um, or glutides. So dulaglutide was shown to have a lower relative risk for non-fatal MI and stroke in patients over 50 with type 2 diabetes. And this is shown in the rewind rerun. Rewind trial uh, published in the Lancet in June 2019, but this only just reached statistical significance. Ozempic or semaglutide may be slightly better than placebo at preventing strokes, and that was a non inferiority trial uh, in established cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease published in New England four years ago at this stage, 2016. Liraglutide had more promising results, and this was the leader trial in 2016. 
and it showed that the person has a low risk of death um, with a number needed to treat of 98 over 3 years to prevent one death and cardiovascular events with a number needed to treat of 68 over 3 years than placebo. Exenatide or bidurian was actually cardio, cardio neutral, so it's like your gliptins. So just to talk about gliptins, um, so you've got citagliptin, vildagliptin, saxagliptin and linagliptin. These, were, these are least effective in reducing HbA1c, reduce it by about 4 millimole per mole, uh, unlike your glyphosins or your sulfonylureas or your pyroglyphosone, reduce it by about 7, and, and then your GLP-1 remarks reduce it by about 11. There's no, they don't have a cardiovascular benefit and they're weight neutral. Now in saying all that, they are very well tolerated, um, and uh, especially in the elderly, they tolerate them very well. Although the one, it, it is noticed that they can increase the risk of upper respiratory tract infections. To be cautious that the dose of these will need to be reduced in renal failure, except linagliptin can go all the way down to the same dose down to an EGFR of 15. And there are concerns about heart failure with saxagliptin. Now, the current uh, European Association for the Study of Diabetes the ADA and the sign guidelines, um, the ADA mean the, the American Diabetes Association and sign guidelines, have, have pu published guidelines regarding cardiovascular outcomes with re regard to these GLP-1 rheumatics and uh, gliptins. So if the patient has pre-existing cardiovascular disease, there are three main agents, so canagliflozin, empagliflozin or liraglutide are the ones to be used. If the patient has known cardiovascular disease and heart failure or at risk of heart failure, dapagliflozin or the other uh, uh, SGLT2s, um, but dapagliflozin probably preferably, if the EGFR is greater than, or was saying that if these guidance were, were saying that if the EGFR is greater than 60, now we've seen with the medicine satellite, they've changed that and it's as long as EGFR is greater than 30, so the, the guidelines will have to be updated. Um, Another agent that a person can use if they're not a target is the GLP-1, if they've known cardiovascular disease uh, or, uh, and heart failure or at risk of heart failure. They, there's some evidence that GLP-1 mimetics are also useful. Now, if the patient has got chronic kidney disease, you can consider canagliflozin as there are renal benefits if the EGFR is less than 60. Now, if you go to the SPC, the Summary of Product Characteristics, currently today, these are it is not to be initiated if the EGFR is less than 60. Um, so because of you know the risk of orthostatic hypertension, elevated potassium, and its decreased efficacy. Um, so that is going to change, and I can see this SBC also changing. These are like one of these guidance, the, the ADA is the American Diabetes Association. We see the canagliflozin is used over there um, at an EGFR of less than 60, so we will see change in this side of the pond. So if the patient is already on canagliflozin, you can actually continue until EGFR is 44, uh, but just reduce the canagliflozin from 300 milligram to 100 milligram. So that brings me to the end of today's podcast. I hope that you found it beneficial. I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast. Thank you. <laughs>